All right, if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. We've been marching through the book of Isaiah. Last time we looked at chapter 11. Not that we'll always look at every consecutive chapter as we walk through it, but uh, we uh, have gone from 11 to 12, um, and we will reference a lot of what happened in 11. Hopefully, one person uh, referred to chapter 12 of Isaiah as the epilogue. Um, of Isaiah 11, the the commentary after it, and I think that's a fair way to call it. This is verse. This is chapter 12, verse 1 of Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah writes, "You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away, that you may comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation." I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the gift of the Bible the incredible gift that you have revealed yourself to us in a written word. Many of us have grown up with Bibles around our houses our entire lives. And as a result, it just seems like that's just where they belong. We forget so easily uh, that this is a gift given from you to us. It's been passed down for centuries upon centuries. And so now, we, these contemporary folks that we are, we gather around a book that was written hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth ever walked the earth. And Father, we come to that book this morning believing that that is your word to us. And so Father, I pray, I pray that you would give me help as a proclaimer of your word. I pray that you would give help to the hearers of your word. There are many folks in this room, many of us, who are walking through various trials. This life has not turned out to be as easy as we might have once thought. And we're wondering what's going on in the midst of it. Father, I pray that your word would come through this morning and teach us the gift that you have given us in these trials to arrest us from our slumber, to rid us of those loves that are not right, and to show us that Jesus Christ is all we need, and one day, by your grace, will become all that we want. I pray for that, Father. We ask these things to you 
through the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. And we ask that your spirit would guide us now in your word. Amen. Some of you are familiar with songs like For What It's Worth, um, better known as Stop, Hey, What's That Sound? Yeah, I can't even say the words without saying, yeah, uh, by Buffalo Springfield. If you are familiar, you recognize that that song is, well, it's going to be best understood if you have some idea of the Vietnam War era and the Vietnam protest movement across the United States at at the time. Perhaps you're familiar with the classic movie, The Sound of Music. Um, Though it's a very enjoyable film in its own right with Sister Maria running around singing and dancing, it's most fully appreciated when you understand what was happening uh, during the time of World War II, in particular Austria's position through the uh, rise of the Nazis. Uh, That's going to help you understand that movie a whole lot. Oftentimes, art acts as commentary for our historical narrative, for the events that are around us. Well, not strictly art. The prophets serve as poetry, song, often figurative language, and they offer commentary on the historical narrative of the Old Testament, of what's going on. And so as we consider Isaiah chapter 12 this morning, we must recognize that it's written to a people within a certain particular historical situation. Remember, God had fulfilled His promise to Abraham that He would give Abraham a nation, and He fulfilled that promise by giving him a nation after He rescued His people out of slavery in Egypt. Unfortunately, that nation split into two nations, Uh, around somewhere around 930 B.C. The nation of Israel was in the north and the nation of Judah was in the south. Israel was fully disobedient to God the entire time and Judah was mostly disobedient to God. Yet long before, well before, the nation was ever fully established, God had told them that if they disobeyed, then he would send other nations to send them into captivity. And so here Judah stands. Judah stands scared. The people of Judah to whom Isaiah is writing, they are scared. And they have every right to be scared. They are in an extremely dangerous position. Because the incredibly cruel Assyrian army was marching from the east down their way. They have good reason to be scared because they watched as the Syrians had already been taken. That's the same area of Syria that you hear in the news today. They they would watch within a year, they would see, or a few years, they would see Israel taken right to their north. And except for an incredible miracle of God, in just a few years, Judah would have been taken if God did not intervene. They are a people in the midst of trial. Brother Richard served us very well as he exposited chapter 11 of Isaiah for us. There Isaiah explained that the people of God have hope in the midst of fear. But their hope, it's not a political 
or military solution. In fact, their hope is not in anything near or even in the distant future. Instead, their hope is in something in the far distant future. Richard titled his sermon, Reason to Hope that God Will Make a Way. And he explained that God pointed the people of Judah not to a particular circumstance as their hope, not a worldview, not a cultural mandate, but solely to a person. That person was described in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, as the root of Jesse. That person is the Son of God, the God-man, the promised Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And in that promised day, all would be made right. All would be made whole because Jesus will reign supremely and the people of God will be with Him. Let me ask, honestly, are we ready for that type of answer to our present day problems? Are we ready for an Isaiah 11 response? I put myself in the footsteps of the original recipients of the Isaiah's text, and I have to be honest, I see mounds of disbelief quickly forming. I'm a father of two children and a husband. I place myself in those circumstances. Imagine, I'm facing an evil army marching towards our home and I know my country's military cannot face off with this foe I would be deeply scared and if honest I would find it hard to swallow if the response of God is to tell me how everything will be made right in the far distant future when he reigns supreme. But that is God's response here. Let that settle. Friends, that is the logic of Isaiah. That is the logic of the Bible. We are encouraged to, ber- to persevere in faith and trust in the present by embracing superior, far superior promises concerning the future. And the promises of the future are not promises of circumstances such as jobs or children or spouses, power or promotion. They're not promises of enjoyment of the flesh such as food or sex or slumber. They're not promises of material wealth or riches. Then how are they superior promises? Because they are promises about a person. And that person is promised to be far better than any circumstances. Far better than any enjoyments of the flesh. Far better than any material thing. Isaiah 12 doesn't shy from this logic. But instead... Isaiah 12 resounds it, amplifies it, leans into it. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together of Isaiah chapter 12. 
you will say in that day. So in that day, you catch that language. It's the exact same language of, of chapter 11. It's a future day. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you may comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. The message of God to His people facing extreme danger is to point them to their individual songs of future praise. The second person pronoun you used in verse 1 stands out as it's a singular pronoun. Usually the word you in the prophets is a plural you. Or in the south, we, we, we have a different word for it. We say, say what? Y'all, right? But, but here it's a singular. It's written to individual persons. What will I be singing in that day? What will you, an individual, be singing in that day? Well, it says each of us will be giving thanks to God because He has turned His anger away and He's offered comfort. Now, that logically assumes that God is angry with me. And that logically assumes that God is angry with you. Friend, did you know that the Bible is abundantly clear that God is angry with His creatures, human beings? Why is He angry? One of the clearest arguments that you'll get about God's anger is offered in the first six chapters of Romans. I encourage you, take an hour, get a good cup of coffee, because there's, if you're going to have an hour... You need a good cup of coffee. Um, actually, you just need a good cup of coffee anytime. Take an hour and a good cup of coffee and sit down and read the first six chapters of Romans slowly. In chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes this very important verse. For the wrath of God, that is the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. God is angry with us because we have sinned. It's a universal diagnosis. All of us have done this. Each, each of us is guilty. And therefore, God is angry with each of us. You know, having someone angry with you really fully depends upon the person. So my children, they often get angry with me. I, I don't get that upset by that. Dad, I'm mad at you because you won't let me play with the heater while I take a bath and juggle scissors. Okay, I hear you. Um, got you. But this is not a child. It's not an adult acting like a child. This is the God of the universe. His anger is fully justified. So in that day promised, Isaiah says that we will be singing thanksgiving because God 
manage to get over his anger? Because he forgot about it and just moved on? Because he really needs some friends and he's willing to just let it go. No. Look at this. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. His anger did not dissipate. His anger did not lose any of its force. His anger was turned in another direction. His anger was turned upon the promised one, Jesus Christ. Romans 5 puts it like this, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, Christ died for us. The anger of God that was once aimed straight at me, at you, at each of us, was turned away from us and turned upon Jesus. That is good news. That is the Gospel. The logic that Isaiah delivers to the people goes like this. There is coming a day when you will be singing about God rescuing you from disaster. That's a hope. Right now when you're all upset, and rightly so, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, I just want you to have some hope because there's coming a day when God will rescue you from disaster. But the disaster will not be an army who trashed your nation, your house, your family, or your livelihood. You may endure all those disasters. Those disasters, though, will pale in comparison to the, the, to the disaster that would have been yours had the anger of God not turned away from you and turned upon Jesus, the slain land of God. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. When the day of hope comes, our song will not be how God solved our current financial problems or given us the spouse or child we so desire or repaired our relationship with our child or spouse or given us success in our careers or healed our illnesses or our pain on this side of heaven. It may well be that we endure every one of those pains and disasters. And should it be the case, we will still be singing loudly with thanksgiving that God turned away His anger from each of us and He turned it on to His beloved. And it gets better. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, keep going, that you might comfort me. So picture this. God's anger is directed at us. We can't even look at Him out of fear and guilt Think here Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah just got a glimpse of God. What, what was his response? Oh, finally, good to see you. I've been wanting to talk to you. Oh, man, I, you're a lot different than I thought, right? Hi, my name's Isaiah. Now, what did he say? Whoa, whoa, it's me, right? Help! 
Right? That, that's the response. So, that's us. God, is, His anger's been directed at us. We're just too scared to even look His way. And then His anger turns away and is directed at His Son. There's now no more anger towards us. But He has every right to never turn back and ever look at us again. And we would still praise Him for His grace for eternity. But Isaiah says He does turn back. Not to say, well, I hope you're happy or you better be on your best behavior now. No, He turns back, brothers and sisters. He turns back to comfort us. That's ridiculous. We should be comforting Him. But He doesn't need anything. That's not how the relationship works. It's a one-way street of God always pursuing and comforting us. He could have rightly ignored us forever and would still be worthy of praise. Instead, He has chosen to comfort us for eternity. And how does He comfort us? What is the medium for His comfort? I mean, for example, if, if I'm comforted by someone, they offer me something to bring comfort, to restore my contentment. Perhaps they offer me pain meds for my headache or a bandage for my wound or, or wise counsel for my problems or presence for my loneliness. Well, what does God offer to comfort us? This is incredible. God offers Himself as comfort to us. We get Him. Look at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. It's what I call a sandwich argument. You get The Bible's chock full of them. A sandwich argument is when you repeat the same premise on both ends and put some meat in the middle between them to explain it. So in the beginning of, of verse 2, so the beginning and end of verse 2 are made up of the same premise, the same points. What are they? God is my salvation. That's it. God is my salvation. Notice, it does not say God gives me salvation. It says God is my salvation. We get Him. We are offered God as our treasure. And what does that mean? Well, in the meat, in the middle of, the, of, of verse 2, when we get God, we get Someone we can trust. You can fully trust Him. When, when we get someone who, who will always fulfill His promises when we get God. More than that, we get someone who can erase our fears. Still more, we get a source of strength. We get someone who can provide and protect us. And He becomes our song. A person who sings is a person who's relaxed, settled, at ease. God becomes our song, our joy, as He settles our soul. But you know what? Before I can feel the value of having someone I can fully trust, who can alleviate my fears, who can be my strength, I've got to first admit that I need someone 
to trust. I must admit that there are things that cause me fear and that I need someone to give me strength. For the believer, nothing reveals that quicker than our sin and our covetous hearts. One of the graces, mercies of salvation is we learn not to trust in ourselves. We learn not to trust in our own righteousness. So again, go back to the picture. There's me standing with God's anger pointed towards me. And then it's pointed away from me and put solely on to Christ. And then God, according to Isaiah here, He turns back to me. Now what am I going to fear? feel at that moment? Let me tell you what I'm going to fear. Feel. I'm going to feel fear. Why? Because I'm going to be thinking to myself, this is not going to go well, but for so long. Because I know me. And that's where the comfort comes in. God offers to me not just the alleviation of wrath over my sin, but a righteousness that is not my own. God becomes our salvation by promising us that He not only saves us from His wrath, but He will save us from ourselves. God delivers us from God and then He rescues us from ourselves. And that leads to joy. That leads to relaxation. And that leads to song. You look down at verse 3 through 5, they're really just an echo of verse 2 as Isaiah now turns to the community of the people of God and says that all these benefits that are for, all the, for each individual are now benefits for the whole community. It's going to sound very similar as we read these. Listen to verse 3. With joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Notice, Isaiah here doesn't describe salvation as a single event. It's not a ticket. It's not a pass. It's not a certificate. He describes salvation for the people of God as a well to be drawn from. That makes complete sense. If you have verse 2, if God is our salvation, then our salvation is a well of unending joy and goodness because God is a well of unending joy and goodness. And, and what will the people of God be singing in that day? Will they be bemoaning the terrible fears of captivity? Complaining about all that time in exile? Wishing God would have changed their circumstances sooner? No, nah, absolutely not. Instead, the people of God will be thanking God for His grace and His unparalleled goodness. Moreover, in that day, they will make known to each other the goodness of God. That's why our weekly gatherings together are a foretaste of the day that's coming. We gather together to sing, to read, to pray, to proclaim about the unending goodness of God. 
While we can already sing about His goodness, we have not yet fully seen it. One day, we will fully tell, tell to each other in song and praise together about the goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is supposed to be encouragement in the midst of our troubles and our trials. There is coming a future day when this trial or that trouble will not only be over, it will not even be remembered. All that we will remember will be that God deserves to be thanked for His goodness because His works are marvelous. This isn't religious hyperbole. It is the truth of God. That day is coming. And verse 6 paints the picture for, for what, what life will look like in the coming day of full salvation. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. That's, that's the coming kingdom. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now he switches. He, he went from the singular you in verses 1 and 2, corporate in verses 3 to 5, and now he goes back to a singular one in verse 6. As he talks, as he says, shout and sing, that's talking to one person. Why? He's saying this will be the singular song of the entire community of God. What will be the subject of their songs? Perhaps they'll be singing that they no longer have pain. Perhaps they'll be singing about the fact that they are saved from hell. Perhaps they will be talking about how beautiful are the streets of gold. Perhaps they will be talking about how great it is to see the loved ones they've missed. That may be true, but that is not what Isaiah says they will be shouting about. No, they will be shouting and singing for great. In your midst is the Holy One of Israel. In other words, they will sing and shout. We will sing and shout that we have God and that God is finally all our treasure. You've probably already figured me out and realized that our added children's message today was not principally for the children. Yes, we use them. That happens to be my daughter uh, Salem's favorite book. I wish it was for the theological content. I'm pretty sure it's because she just likes acting scared of the wolves. But the more that I thought about Isaiah chapter 12, the more I thought of Adam Raccoon and the Lost Woods. Let me quickly walk you through why. Like Adam Raccoon, the Israelites had gotten themselves in trouble chasing the things of this temporary world. Things they did not actually need. They were not rejecting God out of hand. They were just trying to have Him along with a bunch of other things. The book of Judges might be seen as God ridding His people of their various items of extra baggage. But still, 
The people of God held on to things that would only later cause them trouble. At various times, God would allow them to see how much they needed Him. And they would temporarily return to Him, hanging on to Him for dear life. But when things started going okay, when they felt like they were out of the woods, they would return chasing things they no longer needed. The setting of Isaiah represents a point at which God out of care and love for His people, has determined to let them go. To let them feel the weight of their lostness and their helplessness. Things will be worse for them before they get better as they will be exiled from their land. But ultimately, God will save His people by throwing His own Son to the wolves. And here in Isaiah chapter 12, Isaiah seeks to point the people to a day when they will finally leave the temporary distractions aside. And finally, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to the Lord, to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away that you may comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. And so, friends, may we be reminded today that we have reason to hope that God will make a way. And may we hear from Isaiah chapter 12, God Himself will be that way. Ultimate salvation is found when we find God in and of Himself as the singular treasure that we want. But we live in this already not yet face. Already God is all that we need. He's not yet all that we want. Salvation is the process of transforming us so that He alone becomes all that we want. God will bring trials our way in order to rid us of all the things that distract us. God was kind to bring the Assyrians to, the, to Judah's doorstep. God is kind to bring us trials to help unsettle each of us from our little red ball. We will be happiest when we are each singing and we're all singing together. Great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. We're going to close by singing together again, All I Have is Christ. And as we do, would we have a spirit that rejoices that God's anger has been turned away? Would we enjoy and rest in the comfort of God? Would we sing together that God has certainly been good to us? And would we pray, Oh God, would You make it so that You will be all that I want. Let me pray for us.